Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting, and now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. My guest today is Joan Halifax, who's known as one of today's most important Zen teachers, especially through her activism and engaged Buddhism. From her work in prisons, to working with death and dying, and so much more. She recently returned from facilitating a dialogue between the Dalai Lama and a group of scientists. Joan is the author of several books on Buddhism and spirituality, and she currently serves as the abbot and guiding teacher of Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In our conversation, she speaks about the unconventional source for radical joy as service to others. And she addresses the way of the modern bodhisattva, a person committed to serving others as well as someone who maintains presence with compassion in the face of extraordinary challenges and suffering. She addresses the importance of shifting from helping or fixing to truly serving. And she addresses the importance of holding and cultivating an attitude of possibility, curiosity, and openness in the face of today's challenges. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. This is Mark Lesser, Zen Bones, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times, and I am just feeling a lot of joy here with my friend, Joan Halifax. Good morning, Joan. Good morning. It's great to see you. And I like that Enso behind your head. Beautiful. Yeah, well, who, who, who did that? That's a Kaz, Kaz Tanahashi. Oh, of course. And <laughs> yeah, who I might have, I don't know if I've ever shared with you the story of Kaz out of the blue called and asked if I would be his coach. <laughs> and I was, I was so like, "Cause I would, I'd come pay, pay to just come hang out with you." Yeah. You know, but we, Kaz and I, uh, spent had lunches together for I don't know every other week for many many years, and it's d- delightful to yeah. yeah, I love this this Enso. Uh, he, he actually sat Rohatsu session this year at Upaya. He's eighty nine. He sat every period. Doing fusatsu, he did every prostration, and I, I just have to say, uh, and he he gave these wonderful, very scholarly talks on the Avatamsaka Sutra, from the perspective of Green Dharma or the environmental perspective. Mm-hmm. So it was a really extraordinary rohatsu. It was the first time we allowed some guests who actually quarantined. Uh, in order to be here. So the outer rim of the Zendo was all, all full, which made me happy. It was beautiful. Yeah, and everybody yeah. quarantined, which I think was very gracious of people. <laughs> yeah. You know? So just for, for people who don't know, Kaz Tanahashi is one of the world's leading translators of Buddhist texts, especially Dogen, and also a calligrapher and just an, an incredible human being. And Joan, uh, uh, 
leads a Zen center, Upaya, in New Mexico, and Ruhatsu. Sashin is a traditional seven-day Zen meditation retreat that, that typically happens for first to seventh all over the world. And then Buddha's Enlightenment Day is then celebrated the following day on the 8th. It's a great, great. You know, it's interesting, you and I, we were saying that the topic here, many, many possible topics, but the practice of joy and, and radical joy. And there's something about, you know, these traditions. And, and also, I, I know that you, you have so many, you have a lot of things going and, and wonder how you, how you practice and find joy and antidotes to burnout that because you are doing so many, so many things. How do you, how do you practice with avoiding burnout and radical joy? Well, I think that's a wonderful question. You know, I think first is to understand joy or happiness or that sense of fulfillment. It's not the kind of, let's say, conventional happiness that comes from, you know, getting a a new uh, car and you're happy briefly or eating a pistachio ice cream and you have this moment of happiness. It's more this sense of uh, fundamental well-being, even in the midst of the complexities of our world today. And how do I how do I maintain it? You know, I don't always maintain it. I will honestly say, but having had big tastes of it in the course of my life, it is in a certain way a kind of reference point or a resource that I know is there even on very cloudy days, if you will. So I know that above the clouds, <laughs> there's clear sky. And uh, the clouds in a certain way give me an opportunity to examine the edge that I'm on, you know, how I'm not practicing good self-stewardship. And uh, it's, you know, it's, I think it. It's not to feel bad about the moments where the weather moves in, but it's to actually use the weather as a way to say, ah, this is a kind of mindfulness spell, and so on. But I want to say something more, and that is I recently returned from Dharamsala, where I was moderating the first day of a science meeting in the living room of His Holiness the Dalai Lama for the Mind and Life Institute and Mind and Life Europe. And His Holiness kept emphasizing, you know, a couple of things. One is that, you know, common humanity, we are all human beings, and the differences that we experience, the polarization, the conflicts, and, you know, thinking about the war in Ukraine and the many conflicts, you know, in countries across the world, and also the interpersonal conflicts that are in His Holiness's awareness, and of course, certainly in mine. And then that meeting was very powerful because it, you know, it looked at some of the psychosocial causes of unhappiness, of burnout, and, and so forth. And then I was in a second meeting of young compassionate leaders. And these were young people from around the world 
who are social activists, including the former head of Extinction Rebellion from Ireland and other just extraordinary young people. And I would just say the common theme that these young people shared in the preparatory meetings was this sense of a burnout, of futility. They're all doing good work, and yet they're anticipating a, a not healthy future. And also, they just see the magnitude or the scale of the problems in the world ramping up and, you know, on their watch. And so His Holiness heard what they were saying in his way. And His Holiness emphasized again and again, and I know this to be the case, he said, you know, the cure for futility, the cure for burnout, in fact, is altruism, an altruistic heart. And I think this is the case, that when what we know from the research in compassion is there are three valences that receive benefit. And one of those is, of course, the person who receives compassion. Um, Another is those who witness compassion. But most interestingly, those who are compassionate and I speak about compassion in a very particular way, receive enormous benefit. So whether your compassion is just on the micro level, you know, taking care of your little friend next to you, your little child, your little plot of earth that you walk upon, or whether it's like the compassion of my good friend, Christiana Fijueres, who I was meeting with yesterday, who is the architect of the Paris Climate Accord. And I mean, her compassion is just boundless, and her energy is just boundless. And it is because her values are very much aligned with this experience of caring deeply for the world. And I, you know, I don't do it to feel better. I don't do what I do to feel better. I, I just do what I do because that's what's before me. You know, it's not like a pill that one takes and gets the benefit. But, you know, after so many decades of doing a good thing here and there, um, I think that I've reached my ninth decade in a way like Joanna Macy, you know, with a sense of, joy that is underneath all of the weather. (laughs) You know, there's a, you you may have, I think of it as a somewhat well-known quote. Uh, Someone asked, you know, Suzuki, why do we practice Zen? And, And he's, you know, he's given many answers to that, but one is so we can be happy in our old age. But there's some, something about what you're saying that I think is, it, it can, I think, it can easily escape the, the 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 importance of it or the profoundness of something about altruism, giving, make making an offering, making our offering as as an approach to our lives. Yeah, right. Very different than somehow trying to you know find safety or be someone. It's it's it completely turns the tables on on an approach to how we live our lives. So those young, you know, so how, and how do you, how do you get that across like to young people who are, 
seeing you know the all of the warning signs around not only climate change but all of the other challenges and divisivenesses and difficulties that we're seeing how do you you know how do you teach that how do you make that 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 shift in way of being you know i think this is a, a great question and it, it's something that's very much in my foreground all the time because we have so many young people at uh, Upaya. And I don't think you can teach it. I think you have to be it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being it is just in the ordinary acts of your daily life. Mm-hmm. And that, that for me, I mean, it's not, I, I know, I, I love Norman's vision of this Bodhi, the Bodhisattva attitude. But the bodhisattva attitude is not something you acquire, so to speak. It's something I believe, and I think Norman also, you know, it arises, you know, out of living to whatever degree that you can an authentic life. Mm-hmm. And others, you know, who happen to be in the field of an authentic life, which includes moments of naturally of inauthenticity, of scrapping around and so on. But, you know, those who are in, in the field of it, feel, you know, this a kind of benefit of having, for example, a, a, a generous mind, mm-hmm. you know, the first paramita, mm-hmm. or a mind that's, you know, cool and peaceful and stable, you know, and, and you know, wholeheartedness. Yeah. So manifesting the bodhisattva attitude in the way that Roshi Norman Fisher has written about it and lives, you know, is something that I think comes out of First, you know, having a, a practice that is scrupulous, <laughs> mm-hmm. having a sangha that allows for the kind of trust for feedback, course correction for, you know, all of us in, in the community of practice. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, doing a good thing in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. not bad, I have to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to again just unpack the word bodhisattva. You know, is is a person who lives for the benefit of others. And I think of the prime vows or promises, approaches. Beings are numberless, right? I vow to be of benefit. I vow to to awaken them. And delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. So there's something about the bodhisattva approach right to life of the, the practice of our own our own awakening and 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 helping benefiting benefiting others again yeah. the core and it's interesting i also think of that that you you were talking about his holiness the dalai lama who again somewhat famously said right if you want to if you want to benefit others practice compassion Right. If you want to be happy, practice. But if 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 you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Oh, that's so it's his, like that's the something about like the 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 unintended right consequences of totally. the, the bodhisattva life or altruism is this kind of radical approach to our own our own well being, our own sense of joy. And, you know, I don't think you and I can emphasize enough how, well, I can't speak for you, Mark, but I fall over the edge all the time. Mm -hmm. And this is why I say, you know, a a community of practice where there's support for feedback is really important because, you know, correcting course is part of the work that 
we do in the experience of practice. <laughs> you know, I, I wrote this book, Standing at the Edge, where I was looking at altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement and burnout. And, you know, these five areas, the antidote to going over the edge, you know, in terms of experiencing pathological altruism and empathic distress and moral suffering and disrespect and burnout is compassion. And I would not know all this had I not been all over all of those edges myself. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been lately calling that edge or going over the edge, getting in touch with my inner Homer Simpson, especially the why does everything have to be so hard? Uh And yeah, but just, yeah, whether and my inner, my inner grump or, but there is something about then returning, returning to how can I help? What, what is it? You know, what, and there's no shortage of need for help in, in whether it's, you know, in my own household or out in, out in the world. You know, actually, I try not to use the word help. And I, I'm sure you remember this, these words from Rachel Naomi Remen, the physician philosopher. You know, she says, helping, fixing, and serving are three different ways of seeing life. When you help, you see life is weak. When you fix, you see it is broken. And when you serve, you mm-hmm. see life is whole. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I always keep that feeling, you know, mm-hmm. that, that her words really have meant a lot to me mm-hmm. over the years because I definitely was a helper and fixer. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, every, every time I hear help, I think, oh, no, 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 no. We're talking about how do we serve a situation? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. No, thank you for pointing that out. I, I love also, like, wh- wh- what what can, what can I offer? What's my offer? Yeah. What's, my, what's my offering? Right? How can I? Yeah. Or even as in leader in leadership, right? In leadership service, right? Um, being of being of service as a as a leader, and you you are an amazing. You've I don't know that if you think of yourself as a leader, and again, it's it's a it's one of those. Uh, you know, can be a as many many. <laughs> to, it's funny. I I tend to think you know people ask me about what's the distinction between emotional intelligence, mindfulness, and leadership. And <laughs> I tend to say I think they're all kind of the same thing. Yeah, they're just different different flavors of, and in some way, it's different flavors of. Bodhisattva practice, or the practice of radical joy, or the practice of radical service, using the word you just used. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I think I've failed continually a, as a leader. <laughs> it's you know, it's a constant learning process, and it's also an, an incredible opportunity for growth, for development. Because you know, how do you actualize, you know, support for others growing into the best of who they are on one hand, and also recognizing issues related to accountability. And, you know, in in an organization, 
And ours is a very complex and dynamic organization, you know, with uh, all the problems that any institutional organization has. It, how do you actually have these sort of two valences in a healthy relationship? And so that's been you know, a big learning, I think, for all of us, and an important one, you know, as we work together, is to see each other's gifts as clearly as possible and to create the circumstances that avoid failure, but to also know the value of challenge and failure uh, in, in an organizational structure where we are all just human beings. And how do we work it relationally? And in the field of practice and aspirationally knowing that we're here for one reason, which is how can we serve others? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, leadership is a, is a, a great area for growth, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think you keep coming back in a way to how can we, create and live and embody in this field of practice? How do we create a field of practice? And again, that, that because the field of practice, the field of service, there's something that joy, joy and seems to arise there or joy or meaning, satisfaction, something that is filled, filled with possibility, right? As, as opposed to there's something opening about it. Mm. You know, Kaz talks about joy density, which okay. I think is a, a you know really beautiful concept. But I, I will also say, Mark, seeking joy, I think, is not going to produce joy. <laughs> you know, number one. Number two, there's a lot of grief in the world today. And of course, I work with people every day who are very discouraged or who have grave physical illnesses where joy is not present and where conventional joy would be an assault in a, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to just also say that when, when you're working in weather zones, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, where suffering is really acute, pasted on joy is a toxin, like, uh, you know, toxic positivity, so to speak. Um, I I really respect people's suffering, knowing that there are profound opportunities for realization, for learning in the journey of suffering. And people like you and I, we have to go through it. And this is, you know, in part about the development of our own character. So, you know, for me, it's not just mm-hmm. being happy, happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we can't leave out. If, if we're going to talk about radical joy and, and radical well-being, we can't leave out suffering. Yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all part of the package. It, it, it is. I mean, you know, the four noble truths or the four important learnings, you know, is connect with the truth of suffering. I mean, it's, you know, this is charnel ground practice, whether it's mm-hmm. our personal charnel ground or the world charnel ground. Mm-hmm. And look deeply to see, you know, uh, why is this suffering in our world today? 
because we really can't transform suffering if we don't understand deeply the roots of it. And that, you know, having that taste that allows us to know who we really are, which is, you know, at the base, at our very foundation, you know, our basic goodness, our the very core of our character is, you know, we're free. We, this is, you know, we're out of the box, if you will, of suffering. And then, of course, I love the path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's our practice. Yeah. So again, just to, just a note for anyone that might not be aware of this, you know, this word that gets thrown around a lot, mindfulness, one of the first teachings of the historical Buddha, the four foundations of mindfulness. And the first is mindfulness of the body. And in that teaching, there's a a large, in fact, it might be the largest teaching in there is the charnel ground meditations is to actually visualize or actually go. go, And this, this was originally in India to go to the places where dead bodies were being, were being burned, you know, cremation ceremony and, and yeah, the Mind, um, so mindfulness, mindfulness of impermanence, mindfulness of impermanence as a starting point. You know, this is such an interesting question. This charnel ground practice, I, I hadn't really identified myself as, you know, kind of in that area until I began to work closely with Glassman Roshi. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Kaz and I went to Auschwitz doing the Bearing Witness retreats. We went several times, and I, I really understood what, well, in my limited way, you know, Bernie's, the importance of Bernie's work and mm-hmm. how to maintain a, a good heart in the midst of extraordinary suffering, and whether it was, you know, the charnel ground of Auschwitz or whether it's the work that I did in the prison system for six years as as a volunteer working on death row and maximum security, or whether it's working with people who have catastrophic illness or people working in the medical system who are so discouraged and burned out, all charnel grounds in our external world, but we have our own inner charnel grounds. (laughs) And, you know, being able to sit in the midst of our own confusion, anger, (laughs) anguish, blame, self-righteousness, and to wake up in those charnel grounds, that is, those charnel grounds are essential for us mm-hmm. to actually connect with and learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I miss, I miss Bernie. Joan was referring to one of her teachers, Bernie Glassman, who, amazing, amazing person, social activist, and the work that he did taking people to to Auschwitz and to to bear witness this kind of bearing witness yeah. practice very powerful well you have things you have to do so i think anything anything that you'd like to offer as a way of closing here around this bearing witness making one's offering radical joy, anything at all that you'd like to say? Well, you know, I'm sort of curious about your perspective on the charnel ground of Silicon Valley and business world and the the Bitcoin world. (laughs) I mean, just watching 
what's happening on Twitter, where I'm very active, you know, on, on that social platform, network pack platform, and so on. And I, I, I'm just curious of your take. <laughs> my, my take, Joan, is that greed, hate, and delusion have been very popular for thousands of years. And, and that there are, it's easy, I think, to, to fall into. I mean, I, I'm saddened that effective altruism has now gotten such a bad name. <laughs> right? but, but kind of a crazy idea, I think, that especially the way one interpretation about amassing a lot of wealth in order to do good things, as opposed to doing, I mean, there's something, I think, it's fine to amass wealth through doing good things, I think would be much more sane than, than somehow that kind of separation. Um, well, it's not just the effect of altruism issue. I, I actually, I think amassing wealth is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think as you amass wealth, I'd get, get rid of it. I think also billionaires should have the heck text out of them. It's just, I think our economic structure is way off. And it's not, I don't think the Buddhists, the Buddha, you know, criticized wealth per se, Mm -hmm. but the suffering that arises as a, you know, as it relates to the 1%. So, you know, I'm glad Warren Buffett, you know, and and Gates do their work, but also they deploy a huge amount of forces toward their own (laughs) real estate endeavors and so on. Yeah. No, I thought it was brilliant, Anand, in the book "Winners Take All," who yeah. descri- who describes our the policies, financial policies of the last forty years as a crime scene. Yeah, right, and how it's contributed. I think it contributed contributes to a divisiveness and a, a, a lack a, a lack of the. It's the opposite of altruism. It's kind of supporting. It's supporting divisiveness and and greed, which are in in so many ways, I think, the opposite of living a life of the bodhisattva path or the life of service and life of offering and clearly don't don't lead to well-being. Well, and it's contributed to the climate catastrophe and, you know, the cascade of effects from what we're facing now in terms of the climate. We're in overshoot right now. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to be out of it, you know, without huge modification of the deployment of our so-called fiscal resources mm-hmm. and the ending of the extraction of our natural resources. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, anyway, don't get me going, but I yeah. think you get my point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> yeah. And like something you said earlier, you know, we're all human beings. I mean, I'm a, I'm often amazed when I find myself, you know, in Silicon Valley, in in the in the halls, in the hallways of Google, or Facebook or Apple. It's human beings who are, you know, in in many ways, many many good people. There's the the, the policies. The policies are in need of real real fixing. And I again, I'm I don't know. It's hard to be optimistic, and yet, and yet, I think in in the in the long run, I think people doing good will will more and more have an effect, have a positive effect. 
Good. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm curious, I'm open and also I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm really concerned. You know, I'm in my ninth decade, so I'm not going to be around much longer, relatively speaking. Who knows? Today might be the end or, you know, 20 years. But interacting with so many young people, which has been grace in my life, you know, in in the past few decades, I, I feel a kind of commitment to do, you know, whatever I can to a sense of love and responsibility for people so we can you know, meet a world that where flexibility and adaptivity are important because we are going to have to adapt even further to circumstances which we did not ever know would be unfolding, at least I didn't, you know, in our lifetimes. Very interesting time. <laughs> I'm not hopeful, I'm curious, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Or I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful. So I, I make a distinction between optimism and, and hope. But, you know, I this is, again, going back to Roshi, Norman Fisher's bodhisattva attitude. You know, holding that attitude of possibility is, mm-hmm. you know, I think our work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Curiosity, yeah. openness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I come back to one of my favorite quotes by Wendell Berry, who says, be joyful, though you've considered all the facts. Yeah, that's it. Beautiful, Mark. It's just been a pleasure meeting with you this morning. Yes, thank uh, you. May you enjoy the rest of your day. (laughs) And may may you thank you so much for all of your great service and offerings (laughs) and your being a model, a model of radical well-being in the world. So thank well, you. Thank you. And of continuous failure. <laughs> <laughs> and continuous failure. One, yeah. one failure after another. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself, to influence your organization, and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.